uh, again uh, we have our uh, discussion on Martin Link's book, uh, the book of certainty, uh, with uh, comment will be given by uh, Dr. Reza Shah Kazemi. Uh, but before we start, we proceed uh, with the reading from Abdurrahman Adnan. Uh, a friend here in Malaysia has come across a certain expression uh, in the writings of uh, uh, Martin Links here. Uh, maybe uh, Dr. Reza can enlighten us what does it mean. Yeah? Uh, it is important expression. The expression was... Uh, uh, the corruption of the best is the worst. Yeah, I think from Latin, corruptio optimi pessima. Yeah, is that so? Yes, uh, that, so, that's it. Corruptio yeah. optimi pessima. Yes, uh, please. Uh, can you enlighten us? Uh, what is the uh, meaning of that expression? Yeah. Before okay. we proceed with the uh, with, the, know, with I, the reading. All right. Well, well, yeah. I don't know about enlighten, but um, I can share with you what I understand from the phrase. Um, and yes, it's used quite a lot in the writings of, of the perennialist authors. Um, and one can begin by saying, let's go into it from a, a, a platonic point of view. Um, First of all, as you rightly said, the basic meaning is the corruption of the best is the worst. Uh, so when the best in society become corrupt, the result is the worst of all possible outcomes. Meaning that when the most influential, when the apparently most intelligent, or the most wise, or the priestly caste, those who are supposed to represent the highest ideals of a society, when those people become corrupt, the result is much worse than if the ordinary mass of the people or the middle classes become corrupt. Because in a certain sense, from a platonic point of view, uh, the masses by nature and inclination, this is a very anti-democratic notion, of course, and Plato is not in favor of democracy, and you know this better than I do, having, I believe, taught Plato's Republic. Is that right, that you taught this in the Greek, Khaled? Yeah, we have some discussion, yeah. Pardon? We have some discussion on it, yeah. No, you had classes where you actually taught Plato's Republic. No, I read Plato in Greek, yeah together with my tutor yeah ah you were the student i thought you yeah. were the teacher no no all right so as you know from the republic and this is something central to uh dr lings's book entitled the 11th hour mm. and this whole theme of the corruption of the best is the worst also is very uh, uh germane to the theme of that book um if you remember Dr. Ling's in the 11th hour talks about the platonic perspective on the inevitability of degeneration in any human society. And that unlike the, the modern idea that we start with some primitive modes of, of governance and then come higher and higher to democracy, which is regarded as the, the pinnacle of human progress in political terms. From the Platonic point of view, it's the exact opposite, that the ideal political constitution begins with the philosopher king, with the one man who is a true philosopher in the Platonic sense, which means a lover of wisdom, and one who receives through his prophetic insight into the nature of ultimate reality, he becomes a lover of that truth because he has been seized by it, inspired by it, and can uh, impart that highest truth. So the only person that really has the full right to govern and to tell other 
grades of society what they should be doing is the one who is the philosopher. He is the king. And this is obviously from a microcosmic point of view. This is where Plato talks about how important it is for the charioteer when he's got the two <clears throat> horses that he has to govern and direct and control. Uh, you remember the one is the appetitive soul, the spirited element, and the other is the irascible soul. And the rational soul, who is the charioteer, has to keep these two horses running, galloping in harmony. Otherwise, there'll be chaos. They'll be going in the wrong direction or be they're going against each other. So in the same way that the optim, the, the best part of the human microcosm is the intellect, is reason. Remember, for the, for, for the Platonic point of view, the moose, that intellect, can be translated as reason, as long as we understand reason to encompass the fullness of what is implied by this faculty, and not simply the rational faculty, but the reasoning faculty, which is like the application of the intellect in all its fullness. And remember, dianoia is simply the rational faculty, but the nous is something that goes beyond, goes into intellectus. And here's something else that I think Dr. Lings would want us to mention in this context, is that, and he mentioned this to us several times himself, that throughout the Middle Ages, uh, it was the conception of the intellect by Boethius, mm. an early Christian in, I think he was 7th, 8th century, very early. But it was his conception that dominated what later became medieval scholasticism. And C.S. Lewis would begin his classes, his lectures, at the University of Oxford by putting up on a blackboard the hierarchy of intellectus at the top, ratio underneath, then imaginatio beneath that, and sensus beneath that. These four levels of consciousness within the human being. And that the intellectus was fundamentally the faculty for perceiving transcendence, the divine transcendence, and in the light of that transcendent reality of ultimate divinity, of the absolute itself, in the light of that perception by the intellect of the transcendent. Transcendent realities, those pertaining to the higher worlds, which in one respect can be called the next world, where the fullness of the intellectual perception can be shared with the soul, now disencumbered of its material entanglements, it now sees things as they really are in all of their majestic splendor and all of the paradises, the gradations in the hierarchy of being will be seen. But even now in this world, the intellect has access to a vision of those higher worlds, the higher levels of being, the ontological gradations, the metaphysical realities, the supernal archetypes going back to the Platonic perspective, even now the intellect has access to a vision of the archetypal sources of all, the ideas, the eidos, all of these archetypes, how they in fact are in that reality, in that higher world, which is like going back to the analogy of the cave, the man who's been able to shake off the shackles that's keeping him fixated on the shadows caused by the puppets taken backwards and forwards behind him. And there's a light of the fire which enables the people tied in the cave to this one vision of the wall. And they're trying to figure out what these shapes are and they think this is the real. The one man who's able to actually get rid of those shackles and turn around, see what's going on, and then leave the cave and see the world as it really is, this is what part of what is implied 
as the fruit of the vision that the Prophet is encouraging, Prophet Muhammad, when he has in one of his most beautiful supplications that can be called a Gnostic supplication, a Ma'arifa supplication, Rabbana Arina Haqa'iq Al-Umur. Rabbana Arina Al-Ashya'a Kama Hiya. Oh Lord, show us the realities of things. Show us things as they truly are. What, what is the intrinsic nature? It's another way of saying, show us the archetypes. Show us the divine names and qualities that manifest themselves first as archetypal forms, essences that give rise to the diversity, the multiplicity, the infinity of the manifestations of those archetypal symbols, paradigms. So when this intellectual faculty is not doing its job in keeping the two other parts of the soul, the irascible and the appetitive, then what happens is that those appetites and those angers the desire for sex and food on the one hand, and the desire to dominate and kill and be aggressive to those who are resisting your domination, the ego in its, in its uh, most aggressive uh, bestial form. These two animals in the soul are going to drag this chariot into their own directions and eventually actually throw the charioteer off. Now, how will they do that? How will the soul become totally sensual and desiring only its own appetites to be gratified on the one hand, or to actually kill and plunder and dominate other people uh, and become a tyrant, a dictator, a vicious person? How is that going to happen? when the, op the, the corruptio optimi has taken place, the corruption of the best has taken place, when the intellect stops doing its job, the result is the worst of all possibilities, mm -hmm. both within the, the soul and within the society. So when the priesthood, or when those who are supposed to represent the philosophers, when those who are supposed to be, quote, intellectuals in the higher sense, when they become corrupt, then very quickly the rest of the, the body politic will follow suit. And one of the clearest examples of this, perhaps, in, our, in, in history, is when we look at what happened in Martin Luther's Reformation, his revolution, one should actually say, his he was revolted by what he saw in Rome, and he brought about a revolution. So a revolution in both senses of the term. He was properly rev revolted. He was repelled. He was appalled at the corruption that he saw taking place in Rome in the late 15th century. He went there expecting to have a wonderful spiritual experience, to be enlightened, to have the, the blessings of proximity to the Pope, St. Peter's, all these wonderful things. And what did he find? That they were boasting about how many, and the Pope was boasting about how many illegitimate sons and daughters he had. And where did we get the word nepotism from? Does anybody know? I, should, I think we'd better start having a little bit of a discussion. Does anyone know? Where the word nepotism comes from? No. Uh, can I ask one of our younger students out there to, to tell us what is nepotism? Let's start from that. Anyone? Someone, somebody. So, I know I... The, the, please. I know you. Who is it? Uh, Adib. Adib, you're always saving the day, Adib. Come on then, come on. Um, I, I think, think it's because you're, you're partly 
What, what, remind us of your background. My background? Yeah, your mother is from where? Your father is from where? Uh, my mother's Punjabi, my father's uh, uh, Chinese Malay. So I knew it. Because if you were pure Malay, then you would not be the first one to always ask the questions. <laughs> I knew because the Malaysian reticence prevailed over everything else. <laughs> so, Adib, go ahead. Tell, just tell us what nepotism is. How would you understand by the term? Um, my understanding is, is nepotism is the election of when one elects one's own family or close relations or friends um, as part of a, you know, to reinforce one's own power or position um, and therefore making it the, the political body a kind of um, linking your own family to the body politic, to, to the political structure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is an example of what corruptio optimi pessima is, that if you are engaging in nepotism, you're bringing members of your own family, your close associates, your friends, your favorites, and you're bringing them in irrespective of their merit for holding that particular, or their worthiness for holding that particular position. So what is bound to happen through nepotism? The corruption of the person who is at the head of the hierarchy, who's supposed to be the best, who's there for some reason, his leadership or her leadership qualities have been recognized to some degree. And so what he or she should be doing is governing that institution or the state or the office, whatever it is, appropriately and with wisdom. And instead, he or she just wants to reinforce their position and therefore saying, look, I want my, my relatives, my friends, my favorites. So the whole system will degenerate invariably when that degree of corruption sets in. That's corruptio optimi pessima. It becomes the worst of all possibilities. Now, the root of the word, does anyone who's listening know where the root, without looking at Google, please, I don't want people quickly going off and doing it, cheating. I want somebody to say what the root, what the etymology of the word nepotism comes from. Do you know? Things from the oh. Greek word uh, are Latin for nephew. And not the Greek, uh, the, the, so, so far as I remember, it's Latin for nephew. Latin, Latin for uh, nephew. Latin for nephew, exactly. So why did that become the word for nepotism? Because, because the popes were not supposed to have children. Exactly. The popes said, uh, make this post available to my nephew. It was his son. So they were lying, calling these sons of theirs nephews. So the word nephew went into nepotism. That's a, the, the clearest example of what corruptio optimi pessima means. That in that Reformation period, when the popes, the Borgias and all the others became so worldly that they flouted the rules of their own position, they wanted, you know, this is actually, why was it that the indulgences took off in this astronomical way just around Luther's time? Because the Pope wanted to build the basilica, a new basilica for St. Peter's, uh, Michelangelo's. And he needed millions and millions of dollars, whatever the currency was in those days for the Italians. Uh, and so he sent out his agents to go to Germany, to France, to England, and to send his preachers and say, look, if you come, you know, they would set up, it would be a big event in the village, in the town, wherever the papal, the papal legate would go. They would set up a kind of theatrical performance. It wouldn't be in the church, it would be in the marketplace mostly. They say, come, 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 and you know, if you want your Auntie Brenda to have five years less in purgatory, put in five pounds into the box. And the more we hear the coins tinkling in the box, the more your Auntie Brenda will be saying, oh, I will be liberated from my purgatory by five years because of these five pounds. Please give more to the Pope. And then they're writing out their little notes that Auntie Brenda will have five years less in purgatory because her uh, nephew 
has just put in five pounds. Yeah, this was the degree of corruption that they were selling papal indulgences. And this is on top of all of the other simony and all this other this corruption that they were doing. But this was the biggest one. This is what got Martin Luther to say, absolutely not. This pope, this papacy, this this system is corrupt to the core. We have to get rid of all of it, and that's what resulted in the fourteen, was it fourteen theses that he that he he actually nailed to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. The fourteen great theses against the corruption of his of his time. So you see, from this we see very concretely what happens when the head of the church goes wrong the whole body politic of the church the institution that he's supposed to represent to be the vicar of christ now another little question does anyone know what this word vicar acts? why do we call the pope the vicar of christ does anyone know Pardon? khalifa khalifa but it's it it, the, the word vicar, vicar is related to the word vicarious, vicarious mm -hmm. atonement. So you are the representative and you are supposed to bring, make present the Christly being. Yes, the Khalifa does the same, but in Christianity, the notion of being the vicar of Christ is far more challenging and demanding within the Christian framework than the khalifa is in the muslim political framework you know the khalifa may actually not be that uh, pious or that knowledgeable or that wise and he can still be a good khalifa but if you are a bad vicar of christ because of the concentration of power and of expectation of rectitude on the part of one who represents christ as you know, when when the when the Khalif, the Khalifa Abu Bakr, uh, anhu, when he became Khalifa, he was called Khalifa to Rasulillah, a Khalifa, the successor of the Prophet of God, and then Omar, radiallahu anhu, was called Khalifa to Khalifa to Rasulillah. And they realized this is getting a bit too long-winded. So they just called it Khalifa for short, or Amir al-Mu'mineen. But they represented, they were meant to uh, enact the ideals, the principles of the revelation. But they were not supposed, within the Sunni conception of political orthodoxy, they were not supposed to have anything like the degree of Isma of immaculate, impeccable, infallible qualities that one would expect of the prophet. Now, unfortunately for Christianity, that was not the case in relation to the Pope. They invested the Pope with such a degree of significance that he was supposed to be a vicar of Christ. He was supposed to be a represent, he was supposed to make Christ present in the performance of the rites, in the anointment of the, the, the sick, in the performance of the baptism, in all these things, the Pope was supposed to be impeccable. He was supposed to enact this. And when in, it started in the Middle Ages, of course, and when the Popes started to actually make these huge compromises, so that by the time of the Renaissance, a complete capitulation to worldliness, their appetites, their sensual appetites, and to their material desire for pomp and splendor and glory, they resulted, resulted in the worst of possibilities. And that's why Luther's Reformation was absolutely necessary. And what did it do, in effect? It made the Roman Catholic Church aware of the degree to which corruptio optimi pessima had poisoned their system. And so what happens? The Counter-Reformation, the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola and his and St. Francis Xavier, these tremendous characters 
extremely intelligent, totally devoted, they started to say, we've got to put things right on the level of the intellect. We have to go back to the place where all this de degenerated from and start to reform, have a counter-reformation. We don't need the Protestants to tell us what we need to do. We need to go back to our own tradition, but we need to do it with meditation, re reflection, with those wonderful spiritual exercises that Saint Ignatius made at the core of his method. And he said, we have to be the soldiers for Christ. We not only have to fight against the Protestants who are uh, undermining the integrity of our tradition, but we also have to, we have to go and spread the word to the rest of the world. And this is why some of the greatest missionaries in a positive sense were these Jesuits, the ones who really tried to bring the beauty and the truth of Christ to South America, to Southeast Asia. I mean, you know, the, the statue they've got even now, Francis Xavier in um, the, the huge Goa. statue. Pardon? In Goa, India. In, yeah. You, you, but it was buried in Malacca, Malaysia. Exactly. I was about to say there must be some monument in Malacca. To, to, because he is not regarded as one of those aggressive missionaries who came and kind of forced people to convert. He came and he preached peacefully wherever he went, and he's still regarded with reverence by people, not only by the Christians that he converted and their descendants, but by the people who objectively looked at the history of these incredibly brave individuals who came and who made friends with the locals who said, look, we, we appreciate that you have a great culture, you have great morals, great values, but look at what Jesus has given you. So this, this kind of missionary activity, based on intellect combined with a sense of the sacred, was restoring that element that was best in the tradition that had become the worst, in that Catholic tradition. So this way in which the counter-reformation led by Saint Ignatius and his brave and intelligent and virtuous uh, companions. And they all, they all showed us what it means to put right that which was wrong in the structure. So I know this has been very convoluted, rambling a bit, but I wanted to at least uh, try and flesh out something of what this corrupter optimi pessima and what we could do now i i see that it, it's nearly five past ten um i don't think it's worth going into the next maybe what we can do is just well first of all let me ask if there are any other questions so another expression i i, I come across i think those who read uh, dr martin link's book i saw it through the physician said uh you come across the expression the extremes meet here Right. Um, let, let me let's ask Abdurrahman Adnan what he understands by this expression, because he also knows it in the French. Uh, which is where I think it came into the English extremes meet. Um, extremes in the, in the French expression it's extremes touch each other. Les extrêmes se touchent, extremes meet. So, Abdurrahman, let's see what you understand by this phrase. I think it means that uh, in uh, whenever there are two, uh, say, opposing opposing systems or systems which seem to be, it is the extremes uh, of uh, both sides which seem to be in agreement with each other. Yeah. Um, all the time or most of the time uh, because somehow the in their extreme in their extremeness or ex they they meet actually uh, they are on the same point yeah uh, would that be right <laughs> yeah no but certainly um but one uh, let's give a concrete example of this that in our own times, we have Islamophobes on the one hand who, who hate Islam, and we have Islamo-fascists on the other hand, the people who are pretending to be Muslim and actually bringing about a kind of fascism in the name of Islam, uh, who are Islamic fanatical 
terrorists. You actually look closely, not perhaps so much at the specific doctrines or affirmations of the Islamophobes and the Islamofascists. They would be totally different. They are completely opposed to each other. But in the, in the, the psychology, they are at one. They are mirror images of each other. So that in a strange way, when the Islamophobe says that Islam is all about terrorism and it's all about the dominance of the Muslims over the rest of the world, that's all the religion is trying to do to establish its control and it conceives of Islam as a kind of monster. It, you know, it anthropomorphizes this religious tradition and attributes to it a demonic character and that demonic character wants to assert its dominance over all other religions. And they say that this religion is best expressed by something in the Quran that says, Inna dina indallahil islam Truly, religion with God is Islam. And they say that this means that for the Muslims, losing this verse of the Quran, or the other verses that say, fight the idolaters until they submit, they attribute to the religion and its followers this aggress aggressive desire for world dominance. When they speak like this, and they ascribe to Islam this demonic character, you will find many Islamo-fascists who say, yeah, they're right. This is what we want. We want to fight the disbelievers. We want to kill them wherever we find them. That's what the Quran tells us to do. And so, yeah, they're right on this point. The only trouble is that they should be joining us in this crusade to establish Islam all over the world. Do I doubt what this, that, and the other? So, what do you find? The enemy camps, totally opposed to each other, are actually saying things that are very similar about the nature of the beast. That, on the one hand, this lot are opposing, this lot are promoting, but the promotion and the opposition is in relation to an entity about which they're in agreement. So, les extremes se touchent the extreme opposites, apparently at war with each other, actually agree on the fundamental nature of the phenomenon regarding which one is opposed to it and the other is promoting it. They agree on that phenomenon and the rest of us are caught in the, in the crossfire and say, no, 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 hold on, this is a wrong, this is not the right kind of war. This is no, there should be a war of the intellect, a kind of crusade on the level of the mind where all true believers, whatever their orientation, should be fighting against the poisons of, uh, athe of militant atheism, of secularism that is undermining people's faith in God and the hereafter and ruining their souls. And that's not a war that can be fought with guns and bullets. That is a war that needs to be fought intellectually help people to be revived in their consciousness of the absolute value. And it's a war that's fought through virtue, through beauty of conduct. When the Prophet Muhammad, and I think we've had this before, when he said that, I was only sent, there are two versions of this hadith that I've seen, but this is the one that I prefer to talk about because it says, I was only sent. Innama bo'ithtu. I was only sent. I was only raised up for you as a prophet. Li'utammima makarim al-akhlaq. In order that I may make complete or perfect the most noble traits of character. As if to say that everything else about belief in God, of tawheed, of uh, the akhirah, of the realities of the divine qualities, the ultimate truth of the divine essence, all of these doctrinal, dogmatic aspects of faith and belief, all of them 
will fall into place to the extent that the character is being perfected. Otherwise, the prophet would be exaggerating, engaging in gross hyperbole if he was saying, I was only sent for the sake of perfect character. But what about all the other things that you were sent to teach? He would say, and imagine, say, all of those other things I was sent to teach will be drawn to the fitra, the primordial nature of that person's soul, where all knowledge is contained, to the extent that he or she is getting rid of their bad character traits, which are so many veils, as the Quran says, Nay, but what they have earned, and this is a karmic idea from the Hindu tradition, it's not what they've done, ma'amilu, it's kasp, it's what you have acquired, it's your karmic, the fruit, the karmic fruit of your actions that has rusted over your heart. So, when you get rid of the rust of bad act, of the bad actions of the past, whatever you've inherited from your previous life, not just in this one, and what happens is the heart begins to see all of the ultimate realities because, as Dr. Lings used to say so frequently, and used to love citing the hadith, that the, the my uh, hadith Qudsi, my earth hath not room to contain me. My heavens have not room to contain me. But the heart of my believing slave hath room to contain me. So Dr. Lings used to emphasize this continuously, that there is somehow room, there's space for the totality of the divine reality within our own core, within our, the core of our consciousness, within our heart. So if the heart's encrustations of bad actions, of vices, if all of that is being polished away, by what the Prophet is saying, the perfection of character traits. And of course, he gives us the main means of improving our character, the best possible way. Of course, we have to do what he referred to as the greater jihad against the soul's evil, against one's own bad character traits. That's essential. But the, uh, the means by which one improves one's character traits is the remembrance of the source of our character traits. God himself, the divine names and qualities that God has revealed to us precisely in order that in remembering, being conscious of, invoking that source, we polish up the heart. Whence the in, in extremely important hadith, which might be regarded as the the methodological foundation of Sufi praxis. لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ سِقَالَةٌ وَسِقَالَةُ الْقُلُوبِ ذِكْرُ For everything, there is a means of polishing, there is a polish, and the polish for the hearts is the remembrance of God, the invocation of God. So, when the heart is polished up, by the remembrance of God, his names and qualities, which are the ontological foundations of our character traits. All of the positive character traits have to be uh, nurtured from within by the divine names and qualities. How does that bring about all of the subsequent gifts of prophetic revelation? If Prophetic saying is to be borne in mind, I was only sent in order to perfect the noble traits of character. By remembering God, by improving one's character, by moving from bad character traits to positive ones, beautiful ones, this polishing up of the heart, which is ihsan, making beautiful what has been ugly. Therefore, the heart becomes purified and it can see 
to quote Sayyidina Isa that the kingdom of God is within you. And you come to see that kingdom of God and therefore you see with the eye of the heart, and we go back to the theme of the book, the book of certainty, that you go from ilm al-yaqeen to ayn al-yaqeen to haq al-yaqeen. You're beginning that journey to the extent that your character is being reformed, purified, uplifted and inspired by the divine names and qualities, the model of which on the human plane, the mirror of which on the human plane is the prophetic soul, the prophetic beauty. Uh, and therefore, when the heart has become transparent in its inmost depths to the vision of the, the intellect, that one can actually see within oneself, then one's talking about finding God within, and then all of the doctrines and dogmas of Islam or all religions, they all become something visible to the eye of the heart. Once the character has been perfected, and to the degree that the character has become perfected, the intellect, the eye of the intellect, the eye of the heart opens, and then you can see for yourself, realize for yourself everything that the Prophet was sent to teach, in addition to good character traits. Obviously, a lot more came just through uh, than just teaching about character. But this is a what Shuan calls a, a certain kind of. Um, the prophet is using the language of the Arabs in order to not just speak their language, but to speak their psychology. That the Arabs only have really got the point if the point is isolated and accentuated in what appears to be an exaggerated way. But the isolation, accentuation, and apparent exaggeration are there in order to really galvanize and seize the imaginative awareness of the interlocutor to say, this is so important, I better get on and do this. This development of good character is so fundamentally important that, look, the prophet is saying he was only sent for that sake. But the element of exaggeration is minimal if we understand what happens through the dynamics that are generated once good character traits are replacing bad character traits. When we're talking about not simply a moral movement, we're talking about a spiritual, what Mullah Sadra would call tashkik of wujud. We're talking about the haraka that takes place, the movement of the gradations of being. You are literally making yourself more real. Your being is becoming more real. You're coming closer to the source of wujud in Mullah Sadra's terms. So this more, what, what starts as a moral and a psychological and even an emotional effort to improve one's character actually carries through in its repercussions, which means you become more real. As, as Shuan says, and I've just realized that we've gone over our time for this session, but I just finished with a great, one of those Many, many, many great statements by Fritjof Schuon that sums up so much of the spiritual life. What the Hindus would call a Mahavakya, an, a, a tremendous utterance. He said that whereas pride repels reality, humility attracts reality. The quality of pride will push reality away from it. It will repel God. And so a man who may start out in his spiritual life with many good qualities, if they are poisoned by pride, then God turns away from that person, reality flees from that person, and all of the other virtues come to nothing. So an intelligent man at the outset can become a very unintelligent man at the end of his life if his virtues have been poisoned by pride, if his intelligence has been undermined by pride. Whereas the converse can also happen, that a man or a woman at the outset of the spiritual life who, whose intelligence may not be so 
manifest, hasn't yet developed to a very high degree, but has humility, that person's intelligence will be enhanced and deepened from day to day. And then at the end of that person's life, lo and behold, he or she is an intellectual, even at the beginning, a true intellectual, and speak about the highest metaphysical truths, even though at the beginning is incapable of doing so. Whereas the brilliant metaphysician at the beginning of the spiritual life, who cannot stop being proud of his brilliance, will end up being an idiot by the end of his life. So this is what Shuan is constantly alerting us to in his writings, that uh, good metaphysics is the metaphysical exposition of a doctrine that makes the reader of that doctrine feel, I must do something about this. Bad metaphysics is the exposition of metaphysical doctrine, which makes the reader feel, I am terribly intelligent. This is the total opposite. So I think I've referred to this chapter before, but I'll do it again now. But the chapter on the spiritual virtues in uh, spiritual perspectives and human facts. Um, it's, a, it's a great early book, I think the second book that Shuan wrote after Transcendent Unity of Religions, which of course itself was uh, the second book after the German book, uh, Primordial Meditation. But the, the second French book was Spiritual Perspectives and Human Facts. And in, in that book, you find a chapter entitled the spiritual virtues and after talking about the virtues in a general way for some pages i think it's something like 20 pages of that chapter are dominated by one spiritual virtue and that is humility so whereas humility attracts the real pride repels it and i i think i'll i'll stop there and say let all let's pray that uh, with imam ali that uh, we are given tawadu' in Arabic, and in the Arabic du'a of Imam Ali, uh, it's in the du'a Komeo, where he says, um, Allahumma inni ataqarrabu ilayka bidhikrik, wa astashfi'u bika ila nafsik, wa as'aluka bidjudika an tudniani min qurbik, wa an tuzi'ani shukrak, wa an tulhimani dhikrak, Allahumma inni as'aluka su'ala man su'ala khadi'in mutadhalladin khashi'in an tusamihani wa tarhamani wa taj'alani bi qismi qaradi'an qani'a wa fi jami'il ahwali mutawadi'a Make me in every single one of my states perpetually humble. And I, I won't translate the rest of the We've gone over our time, unfortunately. But I would strongly recommend you all to look at the Dark Omeo, not just from the point of view of its excellence as a supplication, but also remembering that this was a supplication taught, dictated to Imam Ali, apparently, by someone he called my brother. And who was my brother? Al-Khidr. He said, this du'a is not for me. This du'a was dictated to me. It was inspired to me by Al-Khidr. So we have to read that du'a very carefully in relation to the story of the encounter between Sayyidina Musa and Al-Khidr in the Surat Al-Kaf. And there we, are, we open up to many, many trajectories and vistas that uh, enable one to see why the why Imam Ali said that the only way to really understand the Quran is to see that one part of the Quran speaks to another part, and one part bears witness to another part, this mutual reciprocal shahada and the, the complement. So you cannot understand one verse or one theme of the Quran without taking into account all of the, the subtle witnessings of that verse of a theme in other places and there you have a matrix which has all of these thousands of verses actually 
redoubling upon themselves and swirling around in these trajectories of meaning that are indefinite, if not infinite. And then this is what I mean by by the uh, the way in which the the dua komel, because it's fundamentally an entrance into. You look at all the verse; they all have to do with some kind of Quranic theme. Most importantly of all, perhaps, is the theme of hawa and the the danger of following one's own desire, as opposed to the dikrullah, which is the complete opposite. Is remembering God. Anyway, I, I've gone well over our time. I must stop there. What I would ask all of you, though, is that for next time. Before we start the reading, and we won't call this, by the way, uh, the seminar uh, on the Book of Certainty, we're going to say, make it quite clear that this was a kind of footnote to the seminars, and we were just going into one or two particular ideas. Um, Corruptio optimi pessima, and then the importance of humility. We can, I'll leave it to uh, Abdurrahman Ghazar to formulate exactly how we describe the seminar. But next time, if we could start, please, with two or three questions to take us not longer than 10 minutes on the material that we've covered so far. And I promise I will rein myself in to not more than 10 minutes on the basis of questions coming from yourselves uh, on the material that we've covered so far. And then we go into the reading, and then we'll carry on. And I want also to go a little bit more quickly, because this is going to be the sixth session, and we haven't got through chapter one yet. The, the other chapters are, of course, much shorter. So it's it, it, we are going to get through them more quickly. But I would like to begin to get through one chapter every seminar. After next time, which I hope we'll finish chapter one, and then when we get to chapter two, thereafter, we should try and cover one chapter every seminar and if you could do some homework in preparation for the seminar so that i don't have to just go on and on and on myself i'd much rather respond to questions than to just give a commentary because who am i to give a commentary i i do my best to answer questions that may arise but i am not qualified to be a commentator on anything that dr lings has written uh, and i'm doing it really in order more to clarify questions than to give formal commentaries. So I'd be very grateful if you could help me to fulfill that intention, inshallah. All right, so can we, we can stop recording there.